unity with each other, harmony with each other, and not letting the man maneuver us into fighting one another. As long as we practice brotherhood among ourselves, and then others who want to practice brotherhood with us, work for that. But I don't think that we should run around trying to love somebody who doesn't love us. In the air when my mama died Both victims are completely different homicide It make me wonder sometimes Damn how mama died I can't shake these memories I'm wanted by If you bring a tear to your eye Then I apologize With every child is born Another shot is fired How many hours is left Before the clock is fired I'm bothered by it Embracing the brilliance of the sound Wondering how to move a nation to millions Because they ain't felt the pace in a minute Harry with it, hip hop Ever so patiently waiting to get it Take a look into the sky and see it scraping the buildings Or look into the mirror, see the face of resilience My heart and frustration is in it When I spit it, it's vintage Soul molded into my own image Yeah From the neck up, it ain't all good. The hood really need a checkup. The blood in the veins, it seems it long ago changed. All addicted to riches, fame is a cold game. Dope boys and rappers, that's the role models. My soul feel hollow, there is no tomorrow. We need to come together like X and King. For we live another day, our Vex and team. I got a six cents on me, cause I'm blessed with this. Who's crew and Zion, our official messengers. And when the stress it gets too much, it might bust. Put the pain down. Player, get together with us. Yeah. And that was Come Together featuring Zion by Black Thought and J. Period. Greetings and welcome to Bernie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics, inspired by Bernie Sanders and progressive and radical activism. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2020. You can find out more about Bernie2020 at Bernie-2020.com. There you'll find all the back episodes, and you'll find some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a story published on CommonDreams.org, written by Ewan Higgins. Not done yet, Bernie Sanders' campaign mobilizes donors for coronavirus relief and raises $2 million. Senator Bernie's campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination's prodigious fundraising operation raised $2 million for charities helping those most affected by the coronavirus outbreak crisis in the last 48 hours, in a move that supporters said exemplified the message of solidarity the Vermont lawmaker has run on. Quote, Bernie Sanders supporters have contributed more than $2 million in two days to charities helping people whose lives have been impacted by the coronavirus, tweeted political strategist Tim Tagaris. Quote, not done yet. The campaign mobilized staff and volunteers to text and call to raise money for five charities. Meals on Wheels, No Kid Hungry, Restaurant Workers Community Foundation COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund, One Fair Wage Emergency Fund, and the National Domestic Workers Alliance. 
Robin Curran, the campaign's digital fundraising director, said in a statement that the money raised showed the importance of Sanders' quote, not me, us slogan. Quote, what we've seen in the last two days is a definition of fighting for someone you don't know, said Curran. The people supporting this campaign have made more than 50,000 donations to help those most impacted by coronavirus because they understand that now more than ever, it is important that we are in this together. According to the campaign, there will be more efforts to raise money for the least fortunate affected by the crisis in the coming days. Sanders has taken a leadership role on handling the crisis, both in Washington and nationally. The senator led online forums on the crisis and addressed the nation via virtual fireside chats. On Friday night during a roundtable on the outbreak, Sanders said that the crisis can only be solved by innovative thinking and extreme measures. Quote, In this extraordinary moment in America and world history, we've got to think outside the box in a way we have never done, said Sanders. This is an unprecedented moment, and we've got to think in an unprecedented way. Next up is a piece published at InTheseTimes.com, and this is written by Natalie Schur. The escalating coronavirus pandemic, still in its early days in the United States, has already upended American life. Within days, the country's residents have begun to transition into an unprecedented phase of social lockdown. Many workplaces have required or encouraged employees to work from home, and over 40 states have temporarily closed some or all schools. Across the country, public gathering spaces, including theaters, arenas, bars, restaurants, and retailers, are also shuttered, furloughing or laying off thousands of workers. And thousands is is a major understatement. Um, While the Trump Labor Department has uh, encouraged states not to release figures, not to release numbers of people filing for unemployment for the first time, Estimates are that uh, numbers nationally that range in the 200 to 300,000 range per week are expected to top 2 million and probably be closer to 2.5 million a week in the coming weeks when those numbers do get released. The longer that major sectors of the economy largely kept humming by low-waged and tipped workers go without customers, the worse the aggregate impact of these developments will be. As more and more workers lose their income amid the coming major economic downturn, their ability to secure the basic needs like food, utilities, housing, and health care will be seriously threatened. Those who will see their pay fall due to closures, business slumps, or care duties in light of canceled classes, will still face ruinous financial obligations. Precarious and poor workers will have little wiggle room as small business owners struggle to keep shops open. Healthcare access will be hampered by tighter family budgets and widespread loss of employer-sponsored insurance. This dire situation clearly demands a dramatic political response, But so far, many Democrats have been reluctant to rise to the political moment. To stave off extreme harms promised by the pandemic, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has resisted universal measures, opting instead for means testing in the face of unprecedented social chaos. The two-week sick leave bill she championed contained major carve-outs, comprising up to 80% of the total workforce. The bill exempts employers with 500 workers or more and allows small employers to opt out as well. Moreover, as Adam Johnson and Sarah Lazar point out at Jacobine, the bill contains no provisions for often precarious freelance and gig workers, leaving them more vulnerable to the dual pressures of lost income and illness. 
while Pelosi's defenders may be inclined to defend the move as the best possible result of a painful compromise. That's not the argument she herself made. Quote, I don't support U.S. taxpayer money subsidizing corporations to provide benefits to workers that they should already be providing, Pelosi tweeted. Her deputy chief of staff was even more explicit. Quote, As Congress considers the next steps, the Speaker believes we should look at refundable tax credits, expanded UI and direct payments, but must be targeted. Their hesitation is especially troubling, given that Republicans appear to be publicly coalescing around the idea of universal cash relief. Senator Mitt Romney expressed early support for the idea, proposing a $1,000 payout to every American. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin told reporters at a press conference on Tuesday that the Trump administration planned to send out checks within two weeks, while Pelosi reportedly remained steadfast in her opposition. Senator Kamala Harris, for her part, has put forward a plan calling for $500 in payments to each family, a far more paltry sum. To be sure, this rhetorical divergence hardly suggests that Republicans are on the verge of becoming a workers' party, especially as many of their plans include means testing. But that they're able to occupy even a rhetorical space to the left of a disjointed message from elected Democrats is a failure. What Kate Aronoff at the New Republic calls a, quote, realignment from hell. While expansions on, widely, on, on the widely panned bill are being debated among House Democrats, it's unclear whether these will replace, supplant, or simply act as a bargaining leverage over further legislation. The coronavirus pandemic presents an opportunity to make an urgent case that very few elected officials so far are making. We are facing an emergency that will lay bare every gross inequality in American life. And the only hope of mitigating the mass suffering that lies ahead is a colossal public investment in what's necessary to ensure dignified lives. Keeping families stable requires universality and equity, which can be corrected later through progressive taxation. Forcing people to contend with administrative quagmires in the midst of a crisis guarantees that far too many fall into the cracks. Senator Bernie Sanders has presented a bold $2 trillion plan, including direct monthly cash payments of $2,000 to every household, 100% payment of unemployment benefits for everyone who loses their job as a result of the crisis, as well as moratoriums on evictions, foreclosures, utility shutoffs, and loan payments. A similar set of proposals was put forward Wednesday by House Financial Services Chairwoman Maxine Waters including billions of dollars in grants to small businesses. These are the types of policies that begin to meet the scale of the crisis and represent the clear way forward for a party that claims to represent working people. When asked by a reporter about his plans for his ailing presidential campaign in light of the coronavirus pandemic on Wednesday, Sanders responded, I'm dealing with a fucking global crisis. Right now, I'm trying to do my best to make sure we don't have an economic meltdown and that people don't die. Is that enough for you to keep busy today? That's the type of urgency this crisis requires, and Sanders, Waters, and other left-leaning officials are showing what real leadership looks like under these dire conditions. Democratic leaders should join in and get busy with them. Next up is a piece published at commondreams.org, written by Jake Johnson. In 20 states in a row, majority of Democratic primary voters support Medicare for All over private insurance. Even as the policy's most prominent champion suffered several defeats to one of its opponents, the clean sweep for Medicare for All continued Tuesday night. As a majority of voters in every Democratic presidential primary state that went to the polls 
excluding those without exit survey data available, expressed support for eliminating private insurance in favor of a single government plan that covers everyone. In Mississippi, which former Vice President Joe Biden won in a landslide over Senator Bernie Sanders, NBC News exit polling showed 62% of Democratic voters are in favor of a, quote, single government plan for all. The margin was even bigger in Washington state, where according to Edison Research data, 63% of voters expressed support for a, quote, government plan for all instead of private insurance. Michigan primary voters backed replacing private insurance with a government plan 58% to 38%. And Missouri voters favored a single government plan by a similar margin of 58% to 37%. That means Democratic voters in 20 consecutive primary states have voiced their preference for a universal single-payer system over the costly private insurance plans that, according to the narrative crafted by the insurance industry and corporate Democrats, American voters supposedly want to keep. Quote, Let's be clear. Progressive ideas are winning regardless of who the nominee is, tweeted Pramila Jayapal, a Sanders supporter and lead House sponsor of the Medicare for All Act of 2019. Medicare for All is the favored policy of majorities of voters in every state, despite all attacks. Bernie Sanders, I, and our movement will continue to fight so every American gets guaranteed health care. Echoing Jayapal, progressive activist Kai Newkirk wrote Tuesday night that, quote, the trend continues. A strong majority of Democratic voters in every state that has voted so far support Medicare for all, said Newkirk. We have to keep working to win the confidence of folks who agree with Bernie on policy, but still think Biden is the one to beat Trump. In a column for The Nation, Tuesday evening as election results rolled in, John Nichols spotlighted that disconnect, noting that while Biden won four of six states, North Dakota and Washington, had yet to have been called. The voters did not favor the centrist stances of the former vice president. Quote, they preferred the, quote, radical ideals of the candidate he was defeating, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, Nichols wrote. Pointing to exit polls showing strong support among Democratic voters for a complete overhaul of the U.S. economic system, rather than minor tweaks, Nichols wrote, the, quote, the ideas that Sanders has popularized were running better than Sanders himself. And I think that is extremely important as people talk about Bernie being defeated, um, both currently in the race for the Democratic nomination for presidential candidate and in his history as many try to paint his service in the U.S. House and the Senate as failures because he did not pass uh, very many major bills, major pieces of legislation that he authored. But that is not the only measure of his worth. His impact on final bills and on the discussion and on the what what is um what what is safely part of the debate is immeasurable his positions that he took taking a position outside of the mainstream influences the mainstream all right next up is another piece from in these times this one is written by Miles Kampf Lassen. Despite his losses, Bernie Sanders' agenda is winning. The outcome of Tuesday's primaries narrows the path for Bernie Sanders to reach the Democratic nomination. Of that, there can be no doubt. While delegates are still being apportioned, Sanders' inability to score a comeback win in Michigan 
the state that re-energized his political revolution in 2016, comes as a major setback to his presidential campaign. Instead, Joe Biden has further solidified his position as the race's frontrunner. Sanders supporters can point to a number of factors that skewed the Michigan outcome in Biden's favor, from long lines and hour-long waits at the polls in college-adjacent areas like East Lansing, Ann Arbor, and Kalamazoo, to glowing media coverage of Biden following his victory in South Carolina, to the subsequent deluge of Biden endorsements from much of the Democratic establishment. But while these issues surely played a role in Biden's victory in the Great Lakes state, Fixating on them alone can't explain why Sanders wasn't able to recreate the coalition that powered his upset win four years ago. After all, at that point in the 2016 race, Hillary Clinton was the party's favorite to win the nomination, had the support of the media and political elite, and yet Sanders still won Michigan. There's plenty of electoral analysis left to dig into when it comes to the Michigan results, but it appears at this time... It appears that, this time, Sanders was unable to capitalize on the strong support of non-college-educated white voters and faced resistance from suburban women. That, along with Biden's ability yet again to win the majority of black voters' support, sealed Sanders' defeat. And this piece goes on. This was published before the Arizona debates and the races, uh, subsequent races, um, including the ones in Arizona, Illinois. Um, and, but, but there's a, a piece right down at the end that I will share. But if you want to uh, read the rest of it, once again, this is published at In These Times and is written by Miles Kampf Lassen. Throughout his run, Sanders has railed against an economic system that leaves millions of working people behind while the super-rich gobble up more and more of the gains, leading to barbarous levels of income and wealth inequality. He's pointed not just to the billionaire class, but also to its allies in the halls of corporate power and media industry as barriers to upending this unequal status quo. And he's made an unequivocal case for enacting sweeping progressive measures to tip the balance towards the working class. And next up is a piece published at commondreams.org, written by Jake Johnson. 20 top economists endorse Medicare for All as best plan to cut costs, save tens of thousands of lives each year. Rejecting, quote, loose talk from corporate Democrats, the media and insurance industry, that a single-payer system would be unaffordable. 20 leading U.S. economists on Tuesday released an open letter endorsing Medicare for All as the best way to reduce soaring national health care costs, significantly cut expenses for most U.S. households, and save countless lives. Quote, We believe the available research supports the conclusion that a program of Medicare for All could be considerably less expensive than the current system, reducing waste and profiteering inherent in the current system, and could be financed in a way to ensure significant financial savings for the vast majority of American households, reads the letter, whose signatories include Columbia University professor Jeffrey Sachs, former Labor Secretary Robert Reich, and University of Massachusetts Amherst professor Robert Pollan. Most important, the economists write, Medicare for All will reduce morbidity and save tens of thousands of lives each year. The letter was provided to Business Insider by Business for Medicare for All, an advocacy group led by former insurance executive Wendell Potter, who is now a vocal supporter of single-payer health care. Quote, by eliminating insurance premiums and out-of-pocket expenses and lowering overall health care costs, Medicare for All will result in enormous savings for almost all households, all except the richest households, who will pay more in taxes, the letter states. Dr. Gerald Friedman, a co economics professor at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and one of the letter's signatories, told Business Insider that, quote, What's really unaffordable is not Medicare for all, 
but the current for-profit system in which price gouging is rampant and the costs of private insurance plans are skyrocketing. Quote, we spend about twice the average for affluent countries in the OECD on health care, Friedman said. And this piece publishes the entire letter and all the signatories as well. So if you want to check out that letter, you can go to commondreams.org, look for an article called 20 Top Economists Endorse Medicare for All as Best Plan to Cut Costs, Save Tens of Thousands of Lives Each Year by Jake Johnson. And next up is a piece written by Bernie Sanders. This is actually published at CNN.com. Our country is facing a medical and economic crisis, the likes of which we've not seen in generations. And our response must meet the enormous scale of the pandemic. It is at this moment that we must remember that we are all in this together. If our neighbor or coworker gets sick, we have the potential to get sick. If our neighbors lose their jobs, then our local economies suffer, and we may lose our jobs. If doctors and nurses do not have the equipment and staffing capacity they need now, people we know and love may die. Now is the time for solidarity and robust action. In the short term, we must respond with unprecedented measures to make sure we protect all people, regardless of their income. First and foremost, that means our response must be guided by the decisions of doctors, scientists, and researchers, not politicians. At their direction, we must immediately increase the availability of coronavirus test kits and accelerate the processing of those tests. We must build out more intensive care units and obtain additional ventilators while doing whatever we can to support and protect medical personnel. And we must significantly improve our communication and collaboration with other countries to ensure that we are learning everything that we can about the novel coronavirus. But as we struggle with this crisis, we must remember how we arrived at this moment of peril and that we must take long-term steps to make sure we are far better prepared for similar emergencies in the future. When it comes to health care, we must finally do what every other major country does and guarantee health care to all our people as a human right, not a privilege. Even before this public health crisis, many Americans were already asking, how is it possible that we spend twice as much per capita as the people of Canada and other major countries, while 87 million of us are uninsured or underinsured. Today, the pandemic puts an even brighter spotlight on the shortcomings of the current corporate-run system. In this current system, people who are sick or experiencing symptoms of the coronavirus may not go to a doctor because they simply cannot afford it. And when somebody is not treated for the virus, that means the infection can spread to many others, putting whole communities at risk. So it is not just a question that in normal times, tragically, unbelievably, 13% of Americans, or about 34 million people, say a friend or family member recently passed away after being unable to afford treatment for a condition, according to a poll from Gallup and West Health. Now, during the coronavirus outbreak, the lack of health care threatens all of us showing that we are only as safe as the least insured person in America. This gets to a fundamental point that is so often lost in our democratic debate. No matter how politically divided we are, we are in this together. As the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. put it, quote, We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one, directly, affects all, indirectly. It is the same principle when it comes to paid family and medical leave. Today there are potentially thousands of workers who may be ill 
and should be staying home but continue to go to work to earn the wages they need to afford necessities like food and housing. Many of these workers are in the restaurant, transportation, tourism, and retail industries and may unknowingly spread the virus in their interactions with the public. People should not be going to work when they are sick. It is unfair to them and it is unfair to the people they are in contact with. We must join every other major country in the world and guarantee paid family and medical leave to all workers. Finally, from a national security perspective, it is incomprehensible that we are dependent on China and other countries for masks, prescription drugs, surgical gloves, and medical equipment like ventilators. As a result of globalization and our disastrous trade policies, which I have opposed, we have been outsourcing millions of jobs and factories overseas that have gutted our economy. Now we are seeing another tragic and devastating result of those policies as we find ourselves dependent on other countries to provide the most essential things that we need to combat a pandemic and protect American lives. Trade is a good thing, but it must protect American workers and protect our national security so that we can produce what we need in the event of a national crisis. That means we must enact fair trade policies that bring production and manufacturing back to the United States so that we are never in this vulnerable position again. The days ahead will be difficult and challenging as we take urgent short-term measures to address the immediate emergency. We must put in place these far-reaching policies to fundamentally transform our country for the better. That is what our presidential campaign has been all about, and that is what our whole country must be about in the months ahead. This next piece is also written by Bernie Sanders, and this one is published at Jezebel.com. The fight for reproductive freedom is happening right now. Women's rights are under attack from far right from far right organizations and the federal, state, and local politicians that they support. Last year, Alabama's state legislature attempted to ban nearly all abortions, even in the case of incest or rape. And the Supreme Court is considering a case that could effectively prevent the majority of abortion providers from meeting the needs of their patients. The right-wing assault on the right to choose is escalating, with low-income women and women of color on the front lines. For women who can afford it, care may still be within reach. But with all matters of justice, justice for the few is not justice at all. In six states, access to reproductive care has become so restricted that only one clinic remains. And even where health clinics are technically available, the cost of care often makes services inaccessible. Long work hours at low wages prevent women from taking the necessary time off to get medical appointments, and the dwindling number of providers means that women are often forced to travel long distances to reach an abortion provider, incurring costs for transportation, lodging, and childcare in the process. It is crucial that we protect Roe v. Wade by codifying it into law. But true reproductive freedom requires that we go further. If workers reliant on employer-based health insurance find that their insurance excludes reproductive health care, then there is no reproductive freedom or justice. If women can't access prenatal care, there is no reproductive freedom or justice. And if after giving birth to a healthy child, that child is subsequently poisoned by lead-tainted water, there is no reproductive freedom or justice. Reproductive freedoms and justice are fundamental to gender equality, and Americans deserve a president who they can trust to protect both the constitutional right to abortion and the economic freedom to exercise that right. I believe I am that candidate. I am proud to say that my record of defending reproductive freedoms predates Roe v. Wade. 
1972, decades before it was popular or politically convenient. I was quoted by the Vermont Press saying that, quote, It strikes me as incredible that politicians think they have the right to tell a woman what she can or cannot do with her body. I'm the only major candidate in the race who has consistently voted against the Hyde Amendment, the legislation that aims to gut federal funding for abortion services, including Planned Parenthood. And I am proud to have a 100% pro-choice voting record from narrow pro-choice American and Planned Parenthood. Joe Biden regretfully has a different record. Just after Roe was decided, Joe Biden believed the Supreme Court decision, quote, went too far, saying, quote, I don't think that a woman has the sole right to say what should happen to her body. As vice president, Biden worked to cut mandated coverage for contraception from Obamacare, and he supported the Hyde Amendment until last June, when his run for president brought fresh scrutiny to his long-held position. I believe that the best way to judge a person is by their record, and when it comes to Supreme Court nominations, a candidate's record gives the best indication of the type of justice a president would nominate. As president, I would never nominate a federal judge, including any Supreme Court justices, who did not 100% support a woman's constitutional right to abortion. I am also enormously proud of the plans put forward by this campaign. I've recently released a comprehensive plan to bring universal and affordable contraception and reproductive health care from fertility treatments to STI screenings to abortion care to every woman in this country. And our Medicare for All plan contains provisions specifically designed to finally bring an end to the crisis of maternal mortality in communities of color, particularly black communities across the country. The freedom to control your own body is a fundamental, inalienable right, and yet politicians on both sides of the aisle have failed to stand up to protect this freedom. I stood with women to protect that freedom in 1972, and in 2020. My position is unchanged. It's the same place I've stood for the last 50 years. With you. And finally is another piece from CommonDreams.org. This one is written by Megan Day and Micah Utrecht. Bernie Sanders has redefined what's possible in American politics. The following excerpt is adapted from the introduction of the forthcoming book, Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. The United States has long been thought to be a fundamentally conservative country, one where large numbers of people would never go for that scary, supposedly foreign, quote, socialism. Pundits and historians have proposed many reasons why. Americans have had it too good, bought off by the overflowing abundance of this country. Socialist utopias have run aground on the shoals of roast beef and apple pie, as Werner Sombart famously wrote in 1906. Or when the point is raised that many Americans have always been poor and overworked and exploited and oppressed, observers have speculated that there's just something unique and undefinable about the American soul that makes us allergic to socialism. We're too competitive, too individualistic. Cooperation just isn't in our nature. Not content with these explanations, leftists often focus on the singular, singularly ferocious repression of labor and leftist organizing throughout U.S. history and the successful division of the American working class through racism, sexism, xenophobia, and other forms of bigotry and oppression. Whatever the reason, it's true that no socialist party has played a notable role in U.S. politics for the better part of a century. Even after the 2008 financial crash, so clearly the result of financialized capitalist system that drove the entire economy into the ground in reckless pursuit of profit, it was not the left 
but the right in the form of the anti-taxation Tea Party that saw an immediate resurgence. Eventually, there was Occupy Wall Street, yet even at those left-wing protests, the concept of socialism remained on the margins in the dominant culture. The principal use of the word socialist was an absurd but powerful epithet thrown at decidedly non-socialist liberals like President Barack Obama. A mass socialist movement remained out of reach. Bernie Sanders helped change that. He showed that there was actually a hunger in American life for a critique of capitalism when it was attached to a bold and credible policy agenda for wealth redistribution and working class empowerment. He called his politics democratic socialism. Americans were supposed to be repelled by politicians like him, who railed against millionaires and billionaires and immune to exhortations to unite and fight along class lines. Yet here was a presidential candidate vying for nomination of a major U.S. political party, giving the party elite a run for their money, and putting class politics back on the map in the United States. We owe Sanders a great deal for insisting, then proving, that a different kind of politics in the United States was possible. That contribution alone will likely reshape the U.S. political landscape for decades to come, putting long-dormant left-wing ideas back into play. But as important as Bernie's politics and policy proposals are, they won't change the country and the world on their own, and they may not even be the most significant part of his legacy as a political figure. What matters even more than Sanders' vision of socialism is the movement Sanders has helped set in motion. Sanders doesn't only argue for free public health care and college or Green New Deal. He says we need a political revolution in this country to achieve those policies. The Sanders presidential campaigns have never been just about getting one man elected to the White House. They're about building a movement of millions that can long outlive and outperform any single electoral campaign. So those of us who support Sanders and are inspired by his call for political revolution and by the rise of other democratic socialist politicians like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the recent teacher strike wave, the surge in the organized socialist movement, and everything else that has taken us all by surprise over the last few years, have to ask. What lessons should we draw from the Bernie Sanders moment? And how can we take all the energy that his candidacies have generated to build a movement that is bigger than a presidential candidate, bigger than a few dozen newly elected socialist representatives, and bigger than anything the U.S. left has seen in decades? During one Democratic Party primary debate in June 2019, Bernie Sanders acknowledged that his opponents had some good ideas. Yet despite a preponderance of well-meaning plans, he asked, How come nothing really changes? How come for the last 45 years, wages have been stagnant for the middle class? How come we have the highest rate of childhood poverty? How come 45 million people still have student debt? How come three people own more wealth than the bottom half of America? He answered his own question. Nothing will change unless we have the guts to take on Wall Street, the insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the military-industrial complex, and the fossil fuel industry. If we don't have the guts to take them on, we'll continue to have plans, we'll continue to have talk, and the rich will get richer, and everybody else will be struggling. Sanders was arguing that the missing ingredient is class struggle. It's the only way to actually realize plans that improve life for the majority of people at the expense of the tiny minority who currently run the show. Sanders doesn't talk explicitly about what socialism means all that much. But it's clear from his advocacy of class struggle 
that he shares the broad outlines of a socialist analysis of what's wrong with capitalism. Capitalism is an economic system in which a small group of people own things like factories, companies, and money itself, and everyone else has to sell their labor to them in exchange for a wage, which they use to buy what they need to survive. Through their labor, workers create a surplus that is funneled into the boss's pockets as profits, rather than being used for the good of everyone. The problem is that all of the capitalist decisions are driven by profit. If they don't make enough of it, their enterprises collapse. And the easiest ways to maximize profit are to pay workers less, make them work harder, avoid regulations, skimp on taxes, and expand into new markets by doing things like privatizing public goods, all of which are bad for the working class. So these two classes are locked in struggle, and since the capitalist class is more powerful, the working class always gets the short end of the stick. Under capitalism, the nation's and the world's tiny minority of economic elites has grown unfathomably rich by soaking up the wealth generated by working people, while those working people's wages have remained stagnant and their lives have worsened. Those economic elites will not give up their power without a fight. The fight must be waged by millions of ordinary people, taking action at their jobs and at the ballot box, in the chambers, and in the streets. Sanders' 2020 campaign slogan, Not Me, Us, signals his intention to use his campaign to incorporate people into that fight rather than merely convince them to vote for him on the basis that he's competent and morally upstanding. At that same June primary debate, candidates were asked which single policy they would make a legislative priority if elected president. At that point, Sanders already had a number of detailed flagship proposals, but he nonetheless rejected the premise of the question, saying, quote, We need a political revolution. A political revolution is a tall order, but it's one we have some ideas about. Ideas that have come from watching the massive groundswell of support for policies like Medicare for All and a Green New Deal. Interviewing organizers and newly elected officials who aren't afraid to embrace those policies and use electoral campaigns to build the kind of bottom-up movements that Sanders has called for. Seeing the surge in strikes and other kinds of militant labor organizing by workers across this country. Witnessing the emergence of robust movements against the racism, sexism, and xenophobia that have been stoked by Trump but existed long before him. And participating ourselves in the new American Socialist Movement as members of the Democratic Socialists of America and staffers for the Socialist Magazine, Jacobin. Nobody saw it coming, but the Sanders campaign has given us all a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to transform our grotesquely unequal and unfair society, which is teetering on the brink of irreversible climate catastrophe. If we're going to seize that opening, we'll need to build a mass, multiracial, working-class movement, one that is bigger and more radical than Bernie. When we say that nobody anticipated the political transformations of the last few years in the United States, we include ourselves in the ranks of those taken by surprise. We both had our ideas about what's politically possible in America radically transformed by the Sanders campaign. Megan by becoming a socialist in the first place. Micah by realizing that socialism can actually become popular in America. The stuff of mass politics. Sanders has showed us that socialist ideas don't have to remain fringe. If we talk about them the right way, millions of people will support them. In fact, given how miserable the status quo has become for so many, given how dissatisfied so many people are with tepid, center-left solutions to our collective problems, huge numbers of people could be interested in socialism precisely because it is such a bold ideology. Maybe we're at a moment when people are actually hungry for bold, uncompromising ideas from the left, not terrified of them.
And not only have we learned that there is an appetite for Sanders' robust political program and an openness to his democratic socialist label, we've also learned that the alternative, advancing a feeble centrist political program against a vigorous hard-right populism, doesn't work. The entire argument made by liberals and some progressives in favor of running Hillary Clinton for president against Donald Trump in 2016 was that, while she was perhaps a less-than-ideal candidate given her long history of equivocation and occasionally outright reactionary politics, she would at least be the safe bet to defeat Trump, who represented a uniquely barbaric threat to the United States and the world. As everyone now knows, this, quote, electability argument turned out not to be true. The electable candidate was not elected. The Democrats' preference for this safe strategy over the years not only culminated in Trump's victory, but has resulted in devastation up and down the ballot from the halls of Congress to state houses and governorships throughout the country. This failure on the part of the Democratic Party should shape how we approach electoral politics going forward. Americans are not excited by, and thus are not driven to vote for, candidates who defend the status quo. If Americans are going to reject the rabidly racist and xenophobic politics put forward by pro-corporate Republicans, they can't just be offered a slightly nicer, more diverse, less reactionary version by pro-corporate Democrats. They need a bold alternative political vision informed by clear moral principles that stands in stark contrast to what's on offer from Trump and the right. Sanders offered that in 2016, and the next generation of left-wing politicians and electoral organizers can offer it going forward. Confident that running on a robust and uncompromising left-wing vision is not only morally correct, but strategically shrewd. The rise to prominence of first-term Congress members Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib is a promising sign that this message is getting through. Not only have they already shown a willingness to use their offices to advocate for the working class, but they have also so far resisted immense pressure to fall in line with the Democratic Party establishment. All three endorsed Sanders for president at the low point of his presidential campaign, when Sanders had suffered a heart attack and pundits rushed to declare that he was finished. If they remain steadfast, they will be anchors in the electoral wing of the movement Sanders started for decades to come. But just as we can't rely on Sanders alone, we can't rely solely on them either. We must take the reins ourselves. We are convinced of the need for a political revolution in this country, and we think that revolution needs to be a democratic socialist one. And there are key questions that must be addressed. First, what exactly is so important about Bernie Sanders? We can answer this by briefly tracing the history of socialism and class struggle in the United States through periods of militancy and retreat, and looking at how Sanders' own political trajectory was shaped by, but also stood outside of, that history. Somehow, through a wild amalgamation of left-wing politicization, a shrewd vision for how to operate independently from and outside of the main currents of American politics, a uniquely stubborn personality, and perhaps a sprinkling of dumb luck, Sanders cut a distinct path through the decades, going from student socialist and civil rights activist to long-shot third-party candidate to mayor of Burlington, to member of Congress, to serious presidential contender. His truly singular political perspective and personal attributes made him the perfect and the only candidate with the credibility and experience to provide political leadership for a new era of popular awakening and a rebirth of class politics. A second important question. How should we approach electoral politics? Elections are a major factor behind the current left resurgence, after all. There's a lot to learn from Bernie's presidential campaigns, the campaigns and in-office actions 
of public officials that have come in his wake from Ocasio-Cortez in the House of Representatives to local elections like the six Chicago socialists who won election to city council and even unsuccessful electoral campaigns that you may have never heard of, like the Jovanka Beckles campaign for California State Assembly. These kinds of electoral campaigns are essential to continue building the political revolution. They're all examples of what we call class struggle campaigns, in which candidates openly identify as socialists, aren't afraid to name the enemy, and work to build working class movements beyond their election and beyond electoral politics altogether. Candidates who wage successful class struggle campaigns will probably be in the political minority for the immediate future, but they can wield outside influence by aggressively using their bully pulpit to promote socialist ideas. Our new book lays out some socialist strategies for punching above our weight. We also talk about the Democratic Party, which has a monopoly on all electoral politics to the left of the Republicans. Despite being an essentially centrist or occasionally center-left party, that monopoly distinguishes the American situation from that of almost every other country on earth, a major boon for the 1% and a disaster for the planet and the working class, both at home, under vicious attack by corporate power, and abroad, bearing the brunt of U.S. imperialism. The Democratic Party is a fundamentally pro-capitalist institution, and that is unlikely to ever change. But in the short and medium term, there are serious barriers to our scra scrapping the Democrats and creating a new mass party that can actually fight for the vast majority of society. That's why we argue for an approach to the Democrats that is willing to use the party's ballot line, preventing us from being doomed to complete political irrelevance, while laying the foundations for an eventual break with the party to create a future workers' party, what has been called a dirty break, as opposed to a clean break, strategy. We think that socialist organizations have a special role to play in building an independent working class movement and eventually a party. They offer invaluable education, a coherent direction and common analysis for organizing around the most pressing issues of the day, a strategic orientation towards the working class, and a deep sense of comradeship and purpose. Right now, there's no better political home for those who want to join the fight than the Democratic Socialists of America, the country's largest socialist organization. Socialists must have an inspiring long-term view of a revolutionized society, but also an actionable short-term agenda. We argue that there is great value in the struggle for reforms, if those reforms can advance socialist values and erode capitalist power. Otherwise, they're just tinkering around the edges and won't help build a bigger movement that can wage and win more ambitious fights down the line. Finally, we argue that the labor movement is particularly important given the centrality of the working class in making the world function under capitalism and the power workers can wield when they join together to fight the boss. A strong labor movement is one that is democratic and fights for the common good of all working class people. The best way to build such a labor movement, as well as close the gap that currently exists between the socialist movement and the working class, is through what is called the, quote, rank-and-file strategy, which places an emphasis on building power at the shop floor level, alongside other workers. In recent decades, some of the most dynamic and transformative fights in the labor movement have emerged because of this type of bottom-up, rank-and-file organization, organization. At the time of this writing, the fate of Sanders' bid for the presidency is uncertain. If he loses, the old problems remain, and the fight continues. If he wins, the fight is far from over. In fact, it dramatically escalates, as the capitalist class will immediately seek to undermine our attempts to remake society. In both scenarios, the ability of the movement that has cohered around Sanders to stand on its own two feet and strategically exercise its power 
is the ultimate decisive factor. We conceive of our new book as a guide for that movement as it strides into the future. We have a once-in-a-lifetime opening to reshape the world for the many, not the few. In particular, given the impending reality of catastrophic climate change, we have no choice but to take advantage of this opening. If we don't want to live our days in a dystopian nightmare. Capitalists are not only exploiting the vast majority of people and maintaining an order based on privatization and austerity that engenders needless suffering. They are also driving the planet to the brink of disaster. To pull it back from the precipice, we have to go toe-to-toe with the industries that are destroying the earth, which means our climate politics require a strong dose of class antagonism. If we want a habitable planet and a future for humanity, nothing less than democratic socialism will do. Liberals are not taking the threats we face seriously enough. They've gotten caught up in sideshow spectacles rather than working to put forward an alternative to the grinding misery of life in America under capitalism. Sanders, meanwhile, showed that we aren't doomed to live in a world of inequality, oppression, and misery. That millions of people really are ready for a critique of the political and economic system we live under and eager to create a society that's just, sustainable, and gives everyone a chance to flourish as a human beings. The movement that his interventions have sparked, which is just beginning to find its footing, is our best hope for winning that society. People often quote Werner Sombart's remark about the preponderance of quote roast beef and apple pie, the incredible abundance that the U.S. working class supposedly has access to, as a way to explain why socialism has not taken root here the way it has elsewhere. Less quoted, however, is the ending of the 1906 book from which that line comes. Sombart, having given his full explanation for socialism's absence in the U.S., has this to say. These are roughly the reasons why there is no socialism in the United States. However, my present opinion is as follows. All the factors that till now have prevented the development of socialism in the United States are about to disappear or to be converted into their opposite with the result that in the next generation, socialism in America will very probably experience the greatest possible expansion of its appeal. Over a century later, these words ring true. We are in a rare, perhaps brief, window of political opportunity. Let's seize it to go beyond the Bernie Sanders campaign and win socialism in our time. And that'll wrap up this episode of Bernie 2020. Once again, if you want to check out all the Beck episodes, go to Bernie-2020.com and you'll find them linked there. You can also watch and listen to me record this live on Twitch. That is on twitch.tv slash unrelated things. When I'm not live there, I am playing back episodes of this and my other podcasts. Here is Petra Glint with the song Up to the People. Thanks for listening.